It's the leading source of local, national and international news, analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. No, <laughs> good morning. Yeah, good morning. From this is Jacob from Green Left Radio, and this is Zane. Um, yeah. So the we're Fed- back. Yes, it's Friday. It's breakfast on three CR. All right. So we have the federal elections happening um, next week. For our program today, um, we're interviewing at least three candidates, um, one from the Lalita Chile from the Socialist Alliance, who is the lead Senate candidate, and we have Ash Blackburn, um, who is a candidate for the seat of Wills and is running for the Drug Law Reform Party. And then um, lastly, we have Bruce Poon. Um, he's not a candidate, for it, but he is a co-convener, of the Victorian co-convener of the Animal Justice Party in Victoria, and um, they are running a, lot, um, a series of candidates. Um, so for this program, we're, go- we're not going to be interviewing any of the mainstream parties, but we're going to be um, interviewing particular candidates from, you know, minor parties that don't get much sort of play in the mainstream media to sort of, you know, see what their issues are and what they're sort of campaigning for and, you know, what they're all about. And um, the latest sort of uh, elect... I guess one thing to comment about in um, the federal election is the interesting kind of propaganda that has come out from the major parties. For example, um, there was a big last, just in the past week, there's been this um, funny kind of meme um, hashtag in response to a, a Liberal Party ad called Fake Trady, and I'm sure Zane would have a lot to, of, to say about that. I find Fake Trady objectionable, and I think the label sticks. It did emerge that he's... Um Apparently he got a metal fabrication ticket, but uh, he lives in some fairly wealthy part of Sydney and it looks like he probably runs some kind of maintenance business. Um, so. well, well, to clarify for listeners who probably wouldn't, um, might have not seen the ad yet, Fake Trade refers to this ad that um, it's basically, to describe it, it consists of like a, it's a 20 second ad of uh, Shrady basically someone like who look who looks is and dressed up on a construction site and and it sort of makes this point that oh yes um this trady goes on about how we should stick with the current government some of the amusing kind of details of it is that um he goes on about how the labor party are attacking his an investment property mm. which i guess can be seen as ironic because tradies aren't even though there are tradies that make quite a bit of money. I don't think investing in investment properties is like a common thing for many people working in the trade industry. I mean, Zane, are you currently uh, investing? Have do you currently have an investment property? Ha! I would, uh, I would think it would be very nice just to be able to afford my first home, but <laughs> that is, uh, that is a distant dream on the horizon at the moment. So. Yes, I certainly don't have any investment properties, that's for damn certain. And there's also uh, a lot of other, um, in the latest Herald Sun, I read um, an article about the whole CFA kind of scandal um, yeah. that's been kind of propped up. What's My understanding from what's happening is it's really a kind of the Murdoch media's kind of attempt at attacking the unions because basically there was a, uh, the United Firefighters Union um, has sort of, fought for this new 
EBI. Um, and this EBA has a lot of sort of, within the EBA, there's a lot of conditions around, you know, improved sort of pay and that for, you know, all these sort of things, good things for, you know, that affect paid firefighters. But there's been this sort of misleading kind of um, propaganda um, that's been brushed up by both the Liberal Party and the Murdoch Press that the, um, that the EBA actually negatively impacts upon volunteer firefighters, um, which is, which has been, which has actually been found to not hold up because the ABA actually doesn't really have anything to say about volunteer firefighters, yet um, this whole um, issue has actually been used as a political football by um, the Liberal Party to, you know, they're wearing badges like, you know, hands off CFA, it's all part of their sort of thing. But I guess... For the Murdoch media and and the Liberal Party, it could be just seen as an it's another attack, a way of attacking the unions once more because we know that the Liberal Party are particularly not fans of unions. I mean, this whole election is pre-sedated um, on on the ABCC, um, the Instruction, um, the Australian Construction Buildings Commission, which is uh, a bill that you know it, essentially it's a it's aimed at tackling corruption uh, um, in unions, but... It claims to be aimed at tackling corruption. But it's not really aimed specifically at unions, um, though my personal opinions, I'm actually against sort of any any sort of commission um, against unions, but for argument's sake, this is specifically aimed at the CFMEU, and I guess a lot of sort of political analysis would say that this ABCC is actually just aimed at attacking the CFMEU, not because they're corrupt, because, you know, a lot of... Um, there's been lots of charges of corruption towards the CFMEU, and it's found that no, know, a, lot of the, a lot of the claims don't um, stick up. So mm. I guess uh, the cynic in me likes to think that, you know, this is just a way of the Liberal Party attempting to attack um, the CFMEU because mm. they're just so effective at actually right. taking industrial action and fighting for their rights. Mm. Another uh, another kind of um, this is a bit of amusing kind of thing that happened recently. There's a marriage equality rally happening this Saturday, so marriage equality is actually a sort of a issue that's on the agenda this election campaign. And there's this sort of debate about whether um, about the plebiscite, and um, um, the plebiscite is basically a sort of non-binding referendum um, that would be put to the people um, and arguing, you know, where people would be able to vote in support or not of um, gay marriage. The arguments against ha- having a plebiscite, this has come from, say, political parties like... Um, Poor little oppressed Scott Morrison. Yes, yes, uh, I'm getting to that point. Um, <laughs> political parties have gone on, maybe such as the Greens and other left-wing sort of critics have actually said that um, this plebiscite would actually induce sort of a lots of hate, open the platform for, like, you know a lot of right-wing forces to um, indulge in sort of hate speech. Mm, homophobic uh, and, and transphobic. Yeah. And um, Scott Morrison's sort of response to that was that, oh, I, I can understand because I felt, you know, oppression and bigotry as um, as an Australian Christian. <laughs> yeah, as a rich right-wing Christian with a senior high-paying job for mm. the Liberal Party, I know what it's like to be a... Um, a, a gay or lesbian or transgender person who's subjected to harassment and violence. What yeah. a stupid assertion. Well, he's certainly part of a he's certainly part of the minority there. The one the you know the most uh, well actually the one the one the, the one, one minority the one minority that really shouldn't exist. Mm. Um, yeah. 
Uh, by, by the way, by the way, good morning, comrades. Apologies oh, yeah. for Dennis arrived in the in the in the program. Yes, so apologi- welcome, ap- Dennis. Apologies for the late arrival there. Yeah. Yeah. No I, I was almost delayed. Um, the the shrams weren't running, so I actually had to walk all the way here from Parliament in the oh, pouring shit. rain. In the rain, um, it's a hard life. Yeah. <laughs> um, hey, we should also acknowledge too. Um, we're broadcasting to you this morning. From the 3CR studios, which are very much built on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Sovereignty was never ceded, so mm-hmm. yeah, respect. I guess I to one, yeah, elders, I, past, present, and future. Yeah, I'm very true, Zane. I guess one point to continue on from Scott Morrison. There's been um, another thing that's been sort of you in regards to the LGBTI community is um, safe schools. I stumbled upon um, someone posting pretty sort of scathing kind of leaflet that's being letterboxed around. Um, basically, it's a, a made by the Liberal Party, and it's basically a leaflet that basically goes on about how Labor and the Greens support um, the gendering of society, whatever that means. But basically, it has a lot of very sort of com- a lot of sort of statements in it that could be interpreted as homophobic, transphobic. It's basically warning people about how Labor and Greens want to implement safe schools, which is an anti-bullying program. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they're arguing, making claims that oh yes, it's making pe- children more. It's Sexualizing children, and yeah, it's it's definitely uh, a pretty sort of underhanded kind of tool of um, political propaganda, and and it's definitely you know. I don't a load know. of bollocks. Yeah. The thing that stands out for me is that I remember from when I was going to school, you'd use homophobic words. Like I learned to use homophobic words by the time I was in mid primary school. Like I'm mm. eight, nine, ten years old. Yeah. And, you know, calling people, you're, you're gay, that's gay. And the problem is you can't just sit by and let kids do that mm. and then wait until they're in mid-high school before you uh, go, oh, and by the way, here's what homophobia and transphobia are and here's what's not okay. Yep. Yeah. That, you, yeah, you've the, got to tackle those it's ideas interesting, um, before they become ingrained mm, and before mm. they become habit mm. in, in little kids. Yeah. I think things have, well, as someone who works in childcare, um, I work often with children who are in primary school, though the school I work in is in a pretty LGBTI friendly area. Actually, mm. I don't really actually have any bad stories to actually say because yeah, I've actually yeah. never seen. Um, children actually use, um, you know, those kind of slurs, which I think is a step forward because from when I was 10 to in that age, the, using the word gay as an insult was actually very common. Like mm. almost every, it was just common casual conversation. Yet mm. in, um, as someone who works with children now, I simply don't hear that slur. And what I'm actually more likely to hear is actually support of, you know, gay marriage, mm. um, and, you know, LGBTI rights from Prime school children, which I think is a very positive thing, and For sure. I guess shows how far we've come. But I guess the fact that we still have this scare campaign about you know safe schools and that yeah. shows that we still have a, a far way, long way to go. Hmm. I guess it's um, it's it's at other schools where there's not that that level of acceptance and that culture of um, yeah, hmm. diversity that that's at Jacob's school that's the issue. Oh yeah, that's true. Hmm. Sure. What else well, is new? Uh, while we are on the, while we are on the topic of uh, election, election issues, I think it's also important to propose what the others what the other uh, 
major party has, uh, has, been, has been putting forward as its uh, policies. Kamala Emanuel writes here in the Our Common Cause and Green Left Weekly, Labour's proposed budget cuts ought to be slammed as well. Since the Labour Party announced a series of savings measures, including the $1 billion worth of Abbott and Turnbull cuts that had previously been blocked in the Senate. Uh, the ALP has tried to make the attacks appear palatable by claiming they are directed at high-income families. However, the truth is they reaffirmed that a future Labour government's direction will be more than will be about cutting government spending than raising revenue from from the big end of town. And apparently, one of the um, the highest profile highest profile cuts that's, uh, that's in their program has been the abolition of the family tax benefits. Part A to families earning more than $100,000 per year, which uh, might sound like it's uh, f- fair enough to do it against the high income earners, but really also feel like it feels like it's opening up a whole new uh, series of cuts which could impact you know, the lower in- income families too. Hmm. Uh, and of course, Labour is also planning to um, save $2.1 billion by continuing the coalition's freezing of payment thresholds for private health insurance rebates. As well. At the same time, uh, when we look at the uh, Labour's education policy, especially higher education policy, they're not copying the coalition's uh, uh, policy either, but they're still effectively implementing cuts to the higher education uh, as well there. Mm. Yeah, they're reducing the repayment threshold, albeit fairly slightly, but the whole point with that is that you should... You shouldn't have to pay back. University should be free anyway. Exactly. And if we're going to have hex, you shouldn't have to start paying off your debts until you're earning good income. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they are sticking with the coalition's proposal with the uh, for, uh, for the for the hex repayments thresholds uh, there, hmm. which, kind of, which kind of almost feels like feels like it's an unending spiral of st- of student debt. Mm. Which, uh, which, which keeps climbing higher and higher until it becomes completely un- unpayable and, unsust- and, and unsustainable. Before you know, it has to be like sold off to private banks, and you know, that, and then students just basically become uh, practically become slaves to the banking system rather than rather than just Cash being regular chaos. or yeah, rather than just, be, just being regular slaves to the uh, to the mm. uh, to the government. All right, so you're listening to 3CR, and uh, it, it, we've just had the Radiothon, and uh, we've still got to bring in a bit more cash to keep this place kicking over. So if you're sitting out there this morning and you've been thinking about making a donation, uh, you've just heard the number, 94198377. Please uh, please do get on the phone, make a donation, and uh, <clears throat> let, let the person that you talk to know that it's, uh, you want it allocated next to Green Left Radio's name. Because, uh, yeah, we're all mm. pitching in all the different shows on 3CR, pitching in to keep this place ticking over, exactly. keep the rad radio coming to you. All right. So we have our interview um, lined up. Um, Zane, is he on, she on the line yet? I think so. Yep. Lali, are you there? Lali? Yes, I'm on here. So to introduce um, Lali, um, uh, Lali Tashile is... Um, actually one of the hosts of Green Left Radio, um, but she's not um, the host um, today. She is also running as the lead um, Senate candidate um, for Socialist Alliance, and we're going to be interviewing her to talk about, you know, you know, um, the policies of Socialist Alliance, you know, her campaign, you know, what she's sort of campaigning for, um, you know, 
all those will we'll get right deep into that. So I guess um, the first question um, to Lali is, you know, what um, can you do sort of describe, um, you know, the, the what is the policies, you know, the program that you know the Social Alliance is running as as um, in this federal election. I guess the key one would be to create a people's movement or join with other um, campaigns to address some of the ills of society. And we have worked with many groups, um, such groups, um, whether it's safety school or anti-racism groups um, or any group that challenges climate change and um, the, the refugee support group. So we are a campaigning party and we certainly take up a lot of issues and we welcome anyone who wants to join us or join those campaigns to be able to raise attention or draw attention to those uh, issues that face society today. Um, I guess um, the next sort of question is for you personally, um, what, um, why, are you, why have you sort of chosen to run um, for the Socialist Alliance? Why I have chosen to run? Yep. Okay, I've been a member of the Socialist Alliance on and off for what? three, four decades now, and um, I found that unless um, people of colour come forward and start addressing issues, um, issues don't get the genuine um, attention that it requires. Um, and often you find, like, for example, in the last um, week or so, I've had several interviews in, in, uh, in Tamil, which is my mother tongue, and the migrant communities do want to know more about um, alternatives to vote for, and that has been a, a, one of the key points in uh, in this campaign for for me anyway. And and personally, I am a feminist, and um, Social Alliance certainly takes up um, women's issues in, in a big way. And the, and the two issues of, of um, being a woman and being a migrant um, fare well for me. But the other issue is a gender question that has affected people a lot these days, and, and I'm speaking as a feminist here, but also uh, I want to draw into the issue that you guys brought up earlier on about um, safe schools and the discrimination against the gay and lesbian um, community. The any minority groups um, attacked uh, is an attack on on me, and that's, that's how I feel it. And that's you know, sort of quick summary of, of the reasons I stand. Well, what, the next question I have is um, what are kind of like, you know, the major policies you actually put forward that you think, you know, are unique to sort of social science and you sort of what makes you stand out from, say, the mainstream sort of left parties, say, maybe like the Greens? Well, uh, what, the one thing I always um, say to this, this sort of question that's asked because they see there's sort of a bit of confusion between the Green Left Weekly um, candidate. I mean, we put out a paper called Green Left Weekly, therefore we, we get mistaken uh, for um, the Greens. Now, the difference is quite stark because um, the, the first difference is that on the climate change question, we want immediate um, and drastic measures uh, to take Australia down the path of 100% renewables by 2020. Now, the Greens want it by 2030. In a recent report from uh, Melbourne Uni put out by David Spratt states that we cannot wait. And one of the people who sponsored that report is Ian Dunlop, who used to be the chair of the coal industry. And at the moment, you know, he, he's speaking out. He's looking forward to that, to that particular report. And he says that if we followed um, business as usual, 
um, we will get to five degrees, which mm. means we go to a point of no return. If you try and keep the Paris um, Agreement, um, it was targeted as two, but the effort was going to be to keep it under 1.5. But the issue is it is impossible to keep it sustained for, for that long. Um, in addition, industries here are trying to tweak the system so that they can do whatever they want. Um, for example, the Adani coal mines and approved. So how are they going to keep the um, temperature rise below 1.5? There are major questions. And already the bleaching of the barrier reef is a major issue. Um, and the Adani coal mine is going to further deteriorate that. So all, the combination of a, a variety of things will force the planet to, uh, to, into the path of destruction. And we have many, many means of doing this. And we push for all those measures that Greens are pushing for and even more. But we also don't subscribe to a market mechanism. We want the government to legislate about this because it's way too important and it's a issue that affects everybody, not just in Australia, around the world. And there are many countries who have achieved either carbon neutral or carbon negative status around the world, and we can easily follow them. That's one issue. The other issue that sets us apart is on the refugee issue. We want all refugees to be brought onto the mainland and processed as quickly as possible with more resources put into the process of actually uh, of reviewing of the, the people who come as refugees. The Greens tend to go for a 30-day detention period, and that puts us apart from them quite clearly. And... I guess the fundamental difference between them and us is that we believe in a true people's um, a democracy, whereas they are quite happy to start into the capitalist framework as it exists today and tweak it at the edges and make it a nice form of capitalism. I think that's a fundamental difference between the Greens and us. Um, my next question is, um, in regards to the sort of idea of socialism, um, for, for actually, even for a lot of people, even if the word is becoming um, having less of a stigma over time, um, to um, to a number of people, um, the word socialism and even communism still kind of like you know brings up sort of images of you know Stars, Stalin, Russia. Um, you know, um, there's a lot of arguments <laughs> that you know um, socialism and um, communism would just lead to um, lead to authoritarian rule. Um, the other criticism. Venezuela. Um, the other criticism, no democracy there. Um, the other. Um, the other criticism is um, that it's not compatible with human nature, whereas capitalism apparently is. Uh, and uh, I guess the, what would your, you know, there's all, and there's also, you know, the, all the kind of Cold War kind of hysteria. And what, you know, as someone who's running for socialist alliance um, and, is, you know, putting forward, you know, a socialist alternative to capitalism, what is your kind of response to a lot of those sort of criticisms um, that are made of um, socialism? Because there is still, I guess, the biggest challenge is to overcome the stigma of towards that's being put towards that word. Hmm. I answer that in two ways. One, the socialism, the word socialism is being destigmatized faster than, than people care to think. I think all you have to look at what's happening in the U.S. and Bernie Sanders and his um, proposals for a, a step towards socialism hmm. um, and the people's movement and, and the political revolution. And that's what he's talking about. That's one and then hundreds of thousands of people who have mobilized behind Sanders. Where it's going to end up, I don't know, but it certainly has mobilized a lot of people simply because someone's listening to them. And that is what socialism is all about. The system that listens to the people honestly and truly and responds to it appropriately to, to benefit the people and the planet. And that's our slogan as well. Now, in, in, in Britain, you see Jeremy Corbyn doing the same. 
Um, and at the moment, with all the uh, uh, Brexit issues going on, and they are looking at what happened to Syriza in, in Greece, but even better is what's happened in Spain, where the two left parties have united to stand for elections next month. Um, so the left on Thursday, socialism... Sorry, on Thursday. Thursday, yeah. And, and you find that the, the word is not um, as scary as people like to portray. Um, and you also look at another angle to this, which is uh, Naomi Klein, who, who's um, well-known around the world, has certainly gone to war on capitalism, has made very clear capitalism is not going to solve the problems today. And the second part of this, is, which is, you know, tailends this, this approach by Naomi Klein, is that capitalism has proven to be a, a system that is totally destructive to human viability, basically. All you have to, to, to see is look at what's happened in, in, around the world. The only word that's compatible with capitalism's austerity measures. They've cut pensions, they've cut um, any concessions given to um, poor people, any support for women, any support for children around the world. It's a constant, the, the word is constant austerity, cut, 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 cut. So really, people have started to realize that it's capitalism that's incompatible with human viability, not socialism. And the Cold War stuff, I think, has waned quite a bit. And... Um, People are looking at these measures. In fact, one of the examples I give is uh, Saunders' campaign has um, uh, struck a chord with many people around the world. And I met up with a, gr a group of people from Melbourne and Sydney who actually have been on this, what they call phone banking, phoning the Americans from here. So it, it has inspired people around the world. So socialism is not a bad word. And people are looking for answers. And the disenchantment with the two major parties is forcing people to look for alternatives. And if we as socialists don't offer that alternative, people then go to the next that's available, which is usually the right-wing parties. So that's not the issue we need to be completely aware of. So that's how I answer people who say, oh, socialism is, is, is bad. And also it's good to take up the challenge. You ask them, what do you mean by socialism? They explain what they understand, and you'll find that usually come to come to the conclusion that they have no idea what they're talking about, um, <laughs> generally speaking, or they, they have a misunderstanding of what it is because mm. they are brainwashed by the media. You mm. know, every time you say, like, even now in the election campaign, they're presenting the ALP as a left. And, and yesterday I saw, I saw this blog. The guy said, oh, ABC is running a very left-wing campaign in, in supporting the ALP and the Greens, uh, all the lefties give them a free run for the, the election advertising, I was absolutely stunned. But the majority of them do understand that capitalism means austerity measures. And um, Lali, um, I, I went along to the presentation uh, probably, what was that, about six weeks, two months ago, about the 30th anniversary of the nurses' strike. And of course, you're a one of the organisers of the Nurses' Union back in 86 when there was that historic uh, strike for, for better wages and conditions after your wages had uh, stagnated for so long and, and there was, you know, really serious uh, nurse-to-patient ratio issues. Um, what, what do you think of um, the state of the trade union movement today and do, do you think that... There might be some sort of. Um, do you think people are rediscovering the need for 
being part of an active and vocal trade union as as part of this rediscovering of socialist ideas and trying to push back against capitalism and, and low wages and expensive living. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a subject that's very close to my heart. And uh, I have to say that this election, as a double dissolution election, is premised on this very question. It's a referendum on trade unions. The ABCC legislation was the one that triggered this whole thing, and people seem to forget that. And very uh, conveniently, neither party is talking about it. The only thing you, talk, you hear about trade unions is when the Liberals want to attack Shorten about his past in his union history. But the reality is this is part of those 30 measures. In fact, I was telling somebody else the other day when um, Hitler came to power one of, in the 30s, one of the key and fundamental and initial things he did was smash the trade union. Mm. That cleared the way for him to attack the people. And people need to understand, while it sounds dramatic, and maybe, you know, many years ago, but the fact is the trade unions are in a people's organization, and that's why we have the freedom of association thing, which means we can organize as a people to defend our rights, and that includes trade unions. If we don't have trade unions, then human rights wane. And the United Nations has repeatedly said where trade unions are weak, human rights will be weak. And we see it in front of us. What we see is as human, uh, trade unions have declined from the 1980s, human rights have also waned in Australia. In fact, Interna um, Amnesty International has stated that uh, Australia's human rights um, legislation and record is absolutely draconian. Mm. So you can see that, that, that partnership that goes on. So the, the, the more attacks people's organizations suffer, uh, the more dictatorial governments become. And I think people realize that maybe they don't put the two, two, two together. There are mobilizations against um, the treatment of refugees, and there are uh, mobilizations in support of, again, lesbian people and safe school issues, refugee issues, you name it. People are mobilizing. Um, the connection has to come. But the trade unions have been completely restrained by legislation. They sneeze and they, go, they have to go to court. So you can see mm. this control that's happening by the current dictatorship, which I see as a capitalist dictatorship, on trade unions. And we are walking the path of what Hitler did in, um, in the 1930s. That's how starkly I'll put it. Mm. All right, so I uh, guess we're um, running um, out of time now, but so do you have any sort of concluding kind of statements? Actually, maybe a question to conclude it on. If you were um, elected to Parliament, what would kind of be the, f the first kind of steps you would do? Well, I will be having lots and lots and lots of meetings with people around the state to talk about what are the issues that are important to them and make sure that people are able to be listened to and will form mobilisations around the state to make the government listen to people's needs. That will be the strategy we use. We already do that in Moreland City Council, where we have got a councillor, and that will be the strategy. We are a people's movement. That's what we will do. Yeah. And vote for us. Vote for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, at 3CR, we uh, can't uh, endorse or encourage people to vote for any particular party, but uh, we wish you luck, Lily. Yeah. Well, if listeners, uh, if listeners enjoyed okay. what um, Lali said, they're more than welcome to yeah, make up their mind. Indeed. Yeah. Thanks, heaps. Thank you. Bye. Right. See you soon. This is Green Left Radio. All right. You are tuned in to Green Left Radio on 3CR, 
And we've just heard from Lalitha Chalia, the lead Senate candidate for the Socialist Alliance in Victoria, at the upcoming double dissolution election. Indeed. Well, while Australia is, uh, brace, is bracing itself for a federal election, over in Britain there has been uh, an, an election, well, happening right now, well, uh, happening right now. Uh, as we could, uh, speak. As we speak, which could actually potentially decide the fate of not just Britain, but also the European Union. We are talking, of course, about the so-called Brexit, or the referendum on whether Britain should uh, remain, remain part of the European Union or leave and be, and be on its own, hmm. basically. Well, so I guess I wa- one thing I wanted to sort of um, talk about is actually, you know, the different perspectives on on Brit on you know whether Britain um, should leave the European Union mm. or should stay. Yeah. And I guess um, the the argument for um, I guess the arg- I guess I'll start with the argument for why Britain should leave. Um, the arguments kind of put forward um, by the left actually is that. Looking to sort of the examples of how, you know, Syriza, the sort of radical, the left-wing government that was elected in Greece was um, crushed by the European Union um, and prevented from, like, you know, implementing sort of any progressive sort of measures. The the argument for, for, um, for, Brit, for, Brit, for Britain leaving the European Union is that the European Union is, is a very flawed institution that is ultimately for, you know... Um, the movement of you know trans you know capital um, mm. and it, and it's always and it cannot and it cannot be it's premised on the fact that Britain has to leave the European Union because the European Union cannot be reformed mm. and not, well not to, not, not to mention that the um, last the last seven the so last seven years we've seen the implementation of uh, well probably of arch neoliberal policy and austerity right across the continent, which haven't, haven't just been you know backed by such unelected European bodies like the Euro- European Commission, but have actually often been often actually been designed uh, by by it and promoted and from, uh, promoted and forced down. Uh, right, ac- right across the continent, especially, especially on the the poorer members, mm. uh, like uh, so li- like Greece, like Spain, like Portugal, uh, and Ireland. So, and and even and even looking back to the foundation of the European Union, it was never meant. It was never created as as you know some sort of a, a beacon of progressivism and social and social justice. No, it was it was it was it was created of the of the out of the uh, um, the the Europe. The European Economic uh, Commission and, and the and the European um, uh, Coal and Coal and Coal and Steel um, it was a- Association it was, it was basically uh, created as as the ways uh, as as the means of merging European capital uh, together in the in the face of the ri- uh, rise of the threat from the Soviet the, from the Soviet Union and as the as as the as the way of consolidating political power across. Uh, uh, across the across the continent, so it was a it was a it was a conservative and neoliberal project to start to be uh, to be to begin with. Um, yeah, I guess um, we have to look into the other side of the argument, the left wing argument for why Britain mm-hmm. should remain in the European Union. Um, it's premised on a few things. Um, it actually acknowledges the same premise as um, the Britain exit that European Union is actually a very flawed, a very a neoliberal mm. kind of institution. Um, but why, um, why the left, you know, 
sections of the left, not the left in general. There's a big, this is a big, actually intense debate for left-wing politics. Uh, the, um, the argument is that if, if Britain were to um, leave the European Union, it would actually um, strengthen um, the far right and the right-wing forces in Britain who have actually, um, unfortunately to say, the right-wing have actually been pushing the British, but they've also been pushing the Remain campaign, to mm-hmm. be clear. Uh, and so the, the argument is that because of this sort of, there's a lot, there's parties, for example, like UKIP, which yeah, is like a right. nationalist kind of far right party who are campaigning for British exit. You know, the reason why Brit, their argument for why Britain should leave the European Union is so we can control our borders more. Mm. Uh, and another, another uh, line of argument is, um, within the European Union, if, um, Britain should remain with the European Union so it can sort of, um, it's a form of like, I guess, maybe this might be a mis, hopefully I'm not misrepresenting the argument, but, um, it's sort of to show solidarity, it's a way of, you know, building solidarity, um, it's premised on the sort of national European identity, and it's, there's better form, it's, um, it's better to remain in the European Union because we're able to stand shoulder to shoulder with other workers, um, across the Eurozone. Mm, exactly. And, uh, but unfortunately, yes, that's uh, pro- probably Brexit has been one of the um, uh, one of one of those elections, one of those issues where it's it, ha- it has been so difficult to uh, uh, to really for uh, for, a le- uh, for the left to pick up to, to pick a, re- a real side to back and a re- real side real side to campaign for. I guess I, I guess I guess another another reason um, why why the far right has actually has become so has become popular and powerful. In countries like UK with UKIP and in in in, front, in France with with Front National or in Greece with Golden Dawn, is it be, is it because they actually undertook it upon them upon themselves to to actively criticize and oppose uh, and oppose the European Union for for different reasons, but but nevertheless because because the left the far left in in Europe never never had a real proper policy of of um, of constantly criticizing and opposing. The, the European Union for all the uh, for aggressive all the, and bad policies they've yeah, implemented. Exactly. So they, they were never seen as uh, as as, push, as pushing that, that that line. They were always mm. seen as being you know soft Euro skepticism. The far right was, was able to jump up, to jump on this uh, on this issue and you know t- twist it according to the, according to the, to their own uh, views. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. One of the articles that I've seen during the rounds it raises a couple of points. One, and, and this came up when Greece was confronting the Troika, um, some of the coverage of Greece said, yeah, okay, maybe Greece should be more seriously considering leaving the Eurozone, but it's not a magic bullet. Uh, you, you can't have socialism in one country, you can't make radical reforms in one country without coming up against the power of capital, but just by putting yourself outside of a currency union, you don't change the fact that you're politically isolated. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. Iraq and Afghanistan weren't members of the EU, but they still got wailed by capitalism. Countries in Latin America aren't part of the EU, but they still Mm -hmm. still come up against the power of capital. So just by being outside of this currency union doesn't mean you're magically uh, no longer subjected to the powers of, of capital yep. mm, and yeah I, was, I, 
sometimes I think it's not popular on the left to to be sitting on the fence, but I'm a bit of a fence sitter. Like I don't really have a strong opinion either way about Brexit. But one of the better articles that I saw just going around in the last 24 hours, it says the left needs to uh, recognise that this particular Brexit is a right-wing Brexit that's yeah. built around this sort of xenophobia and fear of refugees. So mm-hmm. yeah. uh, it's it's not like a, a radical Scottish independence um, Brexit that's yeah. built around a progressive exit. Yeah. It's built around a right-wing xenophobic nationalist exit. So yeah. that's why it's uh, potentially... Not really good news if if it gets up. That's I thought that was a pretty compelling argument. Yeah. Well, my my kind of thing. Um, what I find fascinating following referendum is a lot of people are kind of um in their vote they're actually, uh, you know, embedding a lot of meaning. Like I'm voting for Brexit because of X and Y. There's all sorts of kind of different reasons why, and I think that is actually I guess a positive sourcing in how people are embedding kind of a sort of sense of meat of meaning to their vote. They're actually thinking critically about why they're voting for this um, program. But mm. my position is actually, yeah, it's, I think it's up for the British, British people to decide, and I guess we'll find out what Britain, the British people, decide to do um, as mm. the outcome on the outcome of the referendum. But at the same time, at the same time, um, uh, Zane, you mentioned before the Scottish referendum. Well, if, the, if, the, if Britain does end up uh, quit, uh, you know, exiting from the European Union, there is a very, very strong possibility of another Scottish referendum as a result of this, since uh, Scotland's traditionally been very, uh, uh, Euro- uh, well, has traditionally been very pro-EU. Yeah, pr- right. Probably been the most pro pro-EU region of uh, of the of the Uni- of the United Kingdom. And they've uh, Nicola Sturgeon, the uh, first minister uh, of, of Scotland, has stated has stated that uh, they will push for a second referendum if Britain. Uh, if Britain uh, exits the European Union, yeah, well, but the way the way I've seen it is the only the only uh, the only good pattern, the only really good pattern um, of events that I think uh, that could really take place on the Bri- on on the British Isles is uh, let's in the event of let's, let's say if Britain gets out of uh, if Britain gets gets out of uh, out of the EU, Scotland Scotland should get out should get out of Britain. Then Britain should get out of Ireland, and and all and uh, and followed up, hopefully followed up by Wales splitting off, and then and then you're just left with this tiny English rump rump, rump state. It's, uh, <laughs> the rump state. That's uh, you know that's uh, completely uh, that, that and which basically brings brings about the end of the uh, the British whatever is left of the British Empire. Mm. And, uh, that's right. You are listening to 3CR. It's Green Life Radio. It's Friday morning, and on the phone line this morning we have um, we have Ash Blackburn, um, Blackwell, I believe. Oh, Black. Blackburn. Is it is it Blackburn or is it what's correct? It's, it's Blackwell. 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 Sorry, I wrote your name wrong on the running sheet. Okay, <laughs> this is off to a bad start. Uh, here's um here's the candidate for. Ash um, Blackwell is the candidate for um, um, is running as a candidate for the seat of Wills, which um, you know represents the Brunswick sort of um, Coburg, Pascovale area, Glenroy. Um, and he is running for um, the Drug Law Reform Party. And um, I guess actually I don't know much about the Drug Law Reform Party, so um, we're going to be finding out from this interview. So um, good morning, Ash. Good morning. 
How are you guys going? Oh, pretty Fantastic. good. Fantastic. Not bad. I guess um, the first question we're going to ask is, you know, introduce, you know, your political party to us. You know, what are you actually running for? And, you know, you call it the drug law reform, which I guess says quite a number of things. So what are your kind of, you know, policies and what are you sort of campaigning around as a political party? Yeah, so the party kind of started up um, a few years ago, just before the last federal election, and it was kind of in response to a report called the Australia 21 Report, which was uh, a, a bunch of experts had uh, written a, a report analysing Australia's drug laws and, you know, kind of calling for, for change and reform in those laws. And um, <clears throat> those of us that were kind of um, interested or involved with uh, activism in that space are like, oh, great something's finally going to happen. <laughs> and uh, the, the report really, you know, a few people kind of took note of it and then it just disappeared. So the, the party um, started up in response to that. And at the time, I was kind of looking for a, a space for activism in this area because I was just perplexed by um, the fact that nobody had really thought to reconsider our drug laws. And, uh, yeah, I got involved with the party then. So the, the party itself... Um, this election, we're campaigning around decriminalising all drugs, um, and that means taking away criminal sanctions. So it's decriminalising the possession and use side of things, not so much the supply. Um, we're also calling for regulation of the cannabis industry um, so that it can be re-legalised and brought within a legal framework. I guess um, your, your, my next question is, um, considering you're um, running for the Drug Law Reform Party and right. um, not the Liberal or Labor Party, um, I would like to kind of hear your response. What is your kind of um, the party and maybe even your personal um, response to a critique of, you know, um, how are the, the Liberal, um, the Labor's policies on drugs are falling yep. short of, and what makes your party okay. unnecessary. I'll include the Greens in that as well because they're kind of a big player and they're also a bit of a player in the seat of Wills, you know, potentially being um, competitive for, for that seat. So before the election, all of the media, you know, was a little bit all talking about ICE and this ICE scourge and what are we going to do about this ICE scourge? And now that it's come to election time, they're completely silent on drug policy. Um, so there hasn't really been any kind of response to that. You might have noticed in the media over the last couple of years, there's been a lot more what I would call responsible reporting around the issues of drugs. So we've got um, papers like the Fairfax Press openly calling for decriminalisation. Same with the Times in the UK, the New York Times. They're all calling for decriminalisation of drugs out of recognition that the prohibition of drugs and um putting criminal sanctions on people for just the possession and use of drugs does more harm in itself than the drugs do. Um, so the, the Liberal Party, they, while they were in government, the last government, they did inject some money into um, their response to the big ICE inquiry that they had. And while a lot of that has just been more of the same in terms of policing and border force and all of that kind of thing, there was a bit of an injection of money into the rehabilitation and harm reduction side of things, although quite modest. The Labor Party doesn't really have anything other than supporting the current national drug strategy, which is essentially more of the same. Mm. Um, and the Greens, the Greens, Richard Di Natale, I've got a lot of respect for him on this issue. He is a doctor, a clinician who's worked in the field. Um, but their policy response 
despite him talking, you know, very eloquently about the issue, is quite modest. $10 million a year for a new harm reduction innovation fund, which the policy itself is, is quite well structured, but it's, it's very modest and it's very far short of actually addressing the, the harms caused by prohibition itself. So by doing something like moving forward with the regulation of cannabis, which is a widely used, widely available drug, which we know quite a lot about the risks and harms of it. Uh, Treasury modelling alone estimates that um, just GST alone would raise $300 million per year in, um, in tax revenue. So with the issue of drugs, often um, the things where people get into trouble is, is when the other parts of their life are difficult. So when they don't have stable housing, employment, they have a history of some kind of abuse or difficulty in their life. Nobody in this election... I mean, the other thing outside of drug policy is the major parties... I haven't heard welfare reform mentioned once. Um, and the, the beauty of the way they did decriminalisation in Portugal was they reinvested the funds that were wasted in trying to stop people taking drugs, which is clearly impossible. We've been trying for 100 years in this country with very little success at all. Um, and then they reinvested that, that money into social programs to help mm. people get stable housing. They subsidised employment for people that, were, that had problematic drug use. And when they assessed people that were maybe detected for possessing or using drugs, if they didn't have a problem with their drug use, they were just a recreational user that, you know, occasionally used drugs on the weekend. They had a job, they had a life, a family, everything was fine. They just shuffled. They said, OK, well, that's not really the business of the criminal justice system. So I think to actually address a lot of these harms, we need much broader reform. Decriminalisation is the easiest and first place to start. That's just wasted money going after people for possessing and using a drug. Hmm. Um, Ash, uh, it's uh, Zane here, one of your uh, rival candidates. In, G'day, mate. How are you? How are you going? Um, yeah, good, good. My, my partner is from northern Germany, and she's been across the uh, border into the Netherlands a few times, and she said yeah. even though marijuana is... I'm not sure of the exact current status, legal status of marijuana in Holland, but I know that it's been more or less decriminalised or legalised for many years and she said that it's basically like alcohol there that when you turn 18 you go and get bakes a fair few times and it's all fun but it's kind of frowned upon in broader society even though it's legal if you get stoned all the time you're seen as a bit of a dickhead so (laughs) does does what's the the story been in portugal does decriminalization lead to increased use of recreational drugs no, no. Even recent data that's just come out of Colorado shows that even like a legal regulated supply hasn't had any increase in use. Even in teenagers, it hasn't made it more permissive. It hasn't mm. made it seem like a cool thing. Because I think what happens is when you have a regulated market where things are out in the open, it's not this hidden thing that happens in the dark. You know, you have to deal with criminals. Um, then you can have a more open conversation about it. Mm. And so... I think the ideal for society would be safe and responsible drug use of all drugs, legal, prescription, currently illicit substances. 
you know, if, if taking drugs is something that you choose to do in your life, it's best done with some consideration, some knowledge about the effects of those drugs and how to avoid any potential harms. And in a legal regulated environment, it's much easier for that to happen. So the places that have liberalised their drug laws, often what they've found is um, drug use is, is pretty stable and problematic drug use tends to fall. Um, Portugal had a very big problem with injecting heroin use. They, it was like about 1% of the population were um, injecting heroin when they proceeded with their trial of decriminalisation. Now, that's fallen significantly. And mm. a similar thing has happened in Switzerland where they have a, um, a heroin prescription maintenance scheme. So somebody that um, is addicted to opiates can go to a government facility and get a pharmaceutical-grade pure dose of heroin. They can go to a government facility and inject it. And um, basically that allows them to do similar things to in Portugal. It allows them to, to manage the other parts of their life because they're not on the hustle trying to get drugs because a lot of the crime and violence and things that people see in society, it's not driven by the drugs at all. It's driven by the illicit market for drugs. Hmm. So people have to, you know, commit property crime and these kinds of things to, to fund their habit. So what's happened in Switzerland is, well, first of all, all of the communicable diseases, hepatitis C, HIV, all of those infection rates fall straight away. And um, what they've found over time, the people within the program, well, they stop committing crimes because they don't have to go out and, and try and find money to, to buy drugs anymore. And so they get they get employment. So the the idea of what a drug user looks like, you know, the stereotype that a lot of people have of you know somebody looking a bit rough, maybe living on the street, that kind of thing. People in in Switzerland often go into the injecting centre. They're wearing a suit and they're going off to a corporate job. It's just that they have a dependency on this substance. But when you take away the stigma of, of drug use, when you take away the need to go and like try and buy it from a criminal market and you can stabilize people's lives and then they can just get on with their lives. Mm. I guess um, we've got um, sort of running sort of low on time. Um, yep. I guess our concluding kind of question I want to ask actually, um, well there's actually quite a number of questions I want to ask you, but I guess the concluding question I want to ask you um, is, um, I actually asked this question to the last candidate, but you know, if you were kind of, you know, elected to parliament or any of your can any of your candidates in your party were elected um what kind of would be the first step you know the first kind of policy kind of thing that you would push forward to um in the parliament um it would be the decriminalization of drugs i think that that's the first and easiest thing to do legalization takes a little bit more consideration to um to think about how you would do that in a, in a responsible way so to actually legalise is quite complicated. To, to decriminalise, it's a much simpler process. I mean, you can do it. We kind of have de facto decriminalisation of some substances already, but we could formalise that and make it a, a, a clear direction in the law and then start working on some of those social programs to, to properly assist people to reduce the harms of their drug use. Oh, all right. Thanks for that. So it was a very good interview. Okay. Yeah, cheers, Ash. Cheers. Thanks, thanks for having me on. Best of luck in the election, Dane. Yeah, you too. Yep, best of luck. And, uh, yes, Ash Blackwell there from the Drug Law Reform Party. And as was mentioned, I'm also running as a candidate in Wills. Um, 
here at 3CR. Some of our volunteers are running as candidates. That's all. Except for me cool. and Dennis. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, from other shows or whatever. So, yeah, the basic thing is it's community radio. We'll just be transparent about it, let people know that we're running. Not trying to, um, I guess, abuse the position as a radio announcer here to just try and, like, force you to vote for us or anything like that. Mm. And if there are any other candidates in the seat of Wills or any other Senate candidates, we did speak to Lalisa earlier today, um, you're most welcome to call into 3CR and have right of reply if you've got some objections to what Lali or what Ash have been saying and you, you want to respond to their policy positions, uh, feel free. Ring up 3CR uh, 9419 and, uh, yeah, people are welcome and encouraged to do that, other candidates, other parties. Okay, so we're now going on to our activist calendar, you know, to find out how you can actually get active um, um, this, um, in the next few weeks, actually. Uh, so in terms of um, this is still ongoing, many of you have probably heard um, the, eight, um, the Bendigo Street occupation is actually still happening and um, um, still it's a t- um, 24 kind of hour for public housing um, to call on the demand that, you know, um, that uh, a number of government-owned houses that were um, picked up from the previous East Wing campaign be added to the kind of stock of public housing. So it's a campaign, ongoing campaign that's been happening for weeks weeks on end and they still need um, all the support they can get. Um, another ongoing kind of picket or struggle that's coming on is the brewery workers fight for jobs. Um, 62 maintenance workers that make um, pure blonde beer in Victoria have been sacked and re-offered their jobs at 65% less pay. They're fighting to get their jobs back and earn a de- decent wage and they are protesting daily from 6am to 6pm at Carlton and United Brewers, which is at 77 South Bank Boulevard, South Bank. Get along, support the picket. All right, so um, this Saturday um, we have um, the Big um, Red Book Fair, um, which will be at the which will be from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Um, at the New International Bookshop in Trades Hall, corner of Ligon and Victoria Streets, Carlton South. So if you need any sort of books, um, if you're like feeling like you need more books in your life, definitely head down there to pick up some books. I'm sure there'll be lots of great deals. Yeah, I was just there last night at the Candidates Forum and. There's definitely a whole bunch of really good books. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, not just in the store, but uh, basically right across uh, Trace Hall, yep. as it usually mm-hmm. is. Uh, so the next, uh, also happening on that day will be uh, a rally for marriage equality um, at 1 p.m. at the State Library, um, and it's organised by Equal Love. Yeah, nice. I reckon in the context, too, of that horrible shooting in Orlando... Um, a week and a half ago, I think it's really important to come along and mm. show your solidarity and support with the LGBTIQ community and, yeah, it'd be good to see a really big rally tomorrow for, for, at that marriage equality actually, rally. Coincidentally, um, there's actually got to be a candle lighting for the victims of Orlando shooting on that same day. Mm. Um, it's going to be happening at... Um, it's going to be like a candle lighting for the victims of the Orlando shooting and it's going to be happening at five um, 5.30 p.m., at the Federation Square, um, and, you know, it's asking that, you know, bring your candle to light on the night. Um, lighters and matches will be provided in a battery-operated candle would be preferred. Um, also happening on that day, there's actually a lot of things happening on this Saturday. Um, in actually um, relation to, you know, the interview we had with Ash, um, there'll be a Don't 
um, the Dope Punish Day 2016. Um, it's, it's aimed to draw attention to how the war on drugs can ruin lives and put people in prison. It's a global advocacy day to raise awareness about the health promotion and human rights of people who have, who use or have used drugs, especially those who have had contact with the criminal justice system. And that will be from 11am to 5pm at the Nicholson Street Mall in Footscray. Mm-hmm. Um, on Sunday, um, there will um, the fascists uh, organising again, apparently, um, uh, uh, it's, there's going to be a, a counter-rally against, um, against the far right. Say no to racism in Melbourne. The campaign against racism and fascism is ready to rally whenever fascists and other racist groups try to impose their racism on the streets of Melbourne. That'll be at 11am the state, state parliament. Um, also um, happening, there'll be a rally organised by the Bendigo Street crew, um, a rally to protest the ho- housing crisis, um, no homelessness, no evictions, no force removes, no waiting lists. It's time for a safe, free, universally accessible long-term housing. The, the cult of neoliberalism imposes forced closures of First Nations communities, privatisation of public housing, huge housing waiting waiting lists, unaffordable property and rentals, enormous housing, but actually I'm, I'm just, I should just tell you actually where it is. It's actually going to be, it's going to be this Sunday at 3pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. Um, also Thursday, um, um, there'll be an election special stand-up and be counter comedy night um, organised by um, the political asylum. Um, it's going to be at 7.30 at 188. 188 Collins Street City and it's presented by the Wheeler Centre in partnership with Political Asylum. And also on election day, um, on Saturday, July 2nd, there'll be election night um, party hosted by the Socialist Alliance. Uh, after polling day, you can you know, share and grow in a good company, uh, left-wing company. You know, From 6pm, um, meals and drinks and the venue will be at the Antonia Cultural Centre. The Anatolian Centre on Sydney Road. Yep. Um, which, where is that located again? Um, oh, it's Antonio Cultural Centre. I don't have the, the address up the top of my head. Yeah. It's, uh, it's on Sydney Road. That's yep. all you need to know. Um, <laughs> there'll be a rally to liberate Palestine the next day um, at 1.30pm at the State Library. It'll be a rally okay. to, um, to the, you know... The day after the election, Sunday, um, July 3. To oppose, yep. you know, the colonisation of um, Palestine, you know, to ask, you know, to demand, you know, that Palestine be free. Um... On Thursday, July 7th, there'll be a film screening of um, Tunnel called Tidal Vision. It's e- Ivan's Hexter's documentary about the fight against the East-West Linked, mm, cool. um, which is emceed by Rod Quantock, followed by Q&A. It'll be at 6pm um, Thursday, July 7th, at the Bella Union Trades Hall, Ligon Street, Carbon South. Entry is free, but please RSVP to reserve place. Captain Snooze is going to be in the building. And um, the next, um, the last kind of event to announce, uh, there'll be a, a red cinema screening of the UK Gold. Um, it's a it's a award-winning documentary um, that shows how Britain Britain is the centre of the global tax avoidance industry. It's narrated by Dominic West and with music by Fom York, um, who. Probably many listeners would have heard of. He's the singer of the best band in the world, Radiohead. <laughs> <laughs> and that'll be at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, um, 407 Swanson Street, opposite RMIT. And, ah, uh, yes, there'll be meal, um, vegetarian meal from 6pm, and it's presented by Green Left Weekly. And is that a scientific and Marxist analysis of uh, Radiohead? Like, they are definitively and conclusively the best band in the world. Yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I guess um, we have, um, for our next um, last interview, we have a 
time for, I guess, one more kind of news, um, short news story? Um, yes, uh, yes, yes, indeed. Although, well, uh, th- well, I thought we, we, we actually just uh, touch upon um, with the, with the things that have been happening over in Spain and uh, France, really. Because yeah. in France, uh, there's been a real media, media blockout of the um, of all, the, of all the, the, the strikes and protests against the, the labor law reform that's put up by the long, uh, long government. The uh, <clears throat> uh, so. The, the Socialist Party government has, is actively trying to force through the so-called El Khomri law, which would eliminate long-held workers' uh, protections. And um, as a result, this has actually um, resulted in two, well, in two, in two very, uh, very, very, very prominent uh, types types of actions. We've seen the Nuit de Bois, with up, well, up, up, up on up on up all nights. Uh, Occupation of public uh, public squares, and on the other hand, we've seen all the all the massive strike, all the massive strikes and protests which have been organised by the uh, by Francis uh, Milton Main Milton Union Confederation CGT. I saw some coverage in it, and it was the police saying, "Oh, uh, can you can please you stop? <laughs> We're so tired." <laughs> yeah. I don't think, um, and I remember there was that was that was the headline of the Daily Telegraph. I don't think I, I was. I don't think I've ever been so happy in my life to see a head, such a headline in the <laughs> Daily Daily Telegraph, and I'm not sure if I ever will see again. Uh, but I don't know if the police saying "Hey, we're really exhausted" is the best way to try and stop a protest. Because yeah. I don't know if, if it's me and I've been at a protest and the cops have been coming to beat my head in. Yes. If yeah. they say we're exhausted, that's just going to make <laughs> me want to protest more. Exactly. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and just and, and just just briefly uh, to, f- to finish off on June 26th, uh, the. Um, over, over in Spain, Spain will Spain will decide on uh, whether or not whether uh, whether or not uh, the left uh, coalition of um, Unidos Podemos or, to, or together or together we can mm. will be given a, will be given a chance to form an anti-austerity government over in over in Spain, and uh, finally and well and become and actually become the first left proper left-wing government in Spain since 1936, 80 years ago. Wow. Uh, yes. Well, chances are look, uh, they, chances are looking quite quite good for for the left there, as uh, they're poised to become at least the, the second largest party, and uh, quite possibly uh, form a coalition government with the uh, these the with 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 the, with the socialists and uh, push across an anti-austerity uh, uh, pol- uh, policies uh, and. And, and, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, give some relief to to Greece and Portugal and Ireland and Italy and other other uh, other nations in the Europe, European South, which have been uh, stagnating under the uh, under the under the, under the yoke and under the um, uh, well uh, pr- pressure from the Euro- from the European Commission and implementing neoliberalism and austerity. Hmm. Right, you're back on Green Left um, Radio. Um, on the line here today, we have um, Bruce Poon. Um, he is, a, um, from my understanding, a convener of the Victorian branch of the Animal Justice Party, um, which is another sort of minor party that is um, running in the federal elections. Um, good morning, Bruce. Morning, Jacob. What do you mean a minor party? We're 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 a major party, just about. Oh <laughs> yeah, I would, actually, yeah, you. Would, well, you're minor compared to say. 
the Greens, Liberal and <laughs> Labor. The point of community radio is we want to give a voice to parties that are outside the school's general mainstream. Yeah, the two-party system. Yeah. Uh, I guess my first question um, for you, um, Bruce, is um, can you sort of describe um, your party? I mean, what you're, you're the Animal Justice Party, but what is kind of like the main policies, the main kind of area of campaigning um, that you do and, you know, that distinguishes you from all the other parties? I think the original thing that distinguishes us is we, we are just here for basically non-human animals. That's the conception of the party, the original conception, that um, we come together as a group of people who understand... Um, non-human animals get a really uh, pretty raw deal in their interactions with human society um, and they need some representation. They need political power, in fact, to try and change the, the situation. Um, they need lots of other things as well so that you know, they need to be represented in, in society uh, by others who, you know, the NGOs who advocate for them and educate the public and, and you know, expose cruelty and so on. But as part of the animal protection movement, we use that other trick, which is politics, to um, you know, get them some votes, uh, possibly get them some politicians, and um, you know, and be in those corridors of power when laws are being made to represent their interests. And um, so we always think about, you know, what what would the animals want? That's the sort of thing that goes through our mind every time, you know, a question is asked, and. Um, the key campaigns that we're running on this election are live export. Uh, you know, we obviously want an end to the live export. It's cruel in its in, in kind of every detail. Um, the factory farming, which is again a huge, you know, stress and killer of animals. Um, the sort of battery farm system and sow stalls and the, the killing of hundreds of millions of animals for food. Um, and, and into wildlife slaughter, we don't think it's necessary to. You know, instantly kill, decide to kill kangaroos or koalas every time they get in the way and interfere with human interests. Um, and sort of a structural issue that we think there are just so many animal issues. What we really need is to separate these animal issues out from, you know, the Minister for Agriculture at the currently Barnaby Joyce and have an independent office of animal welfare. So somebody who's in the government who's structurally, genuinely interested in animal welfare. And we'll have a different say in the in the in the cabinet, um, and be able to you know argue honestly for their interests. I guess my next question is um, um, because um, the Animal Justice Party um, exists, I presume that all the major parties, um, um, the Greens or the Liberal Party, um, um, Labor, and to a lesser extent um, the Greens, are possibly falling short on. On this question, so what are your kind of main sort of criticisms of um, these major pol- policies and their response to the whole question of animal welfare? Yeah, it's very much a marginal issue for them, and it, it's you know it always comes second to human issues that they think are going to you know go down better with the community or win them votes, and so there's a big injustice ends up. You know, well, the biggest injustice, as far as we're concerned, ends up happening because we're dealing with the powerless here, and um, you know they, uh, you know, the results, the results are all around us and are pretty terrible. So, I mean, there is a, you know, a different way some of them see it. There's a lot more people, or a greater percentage of people in the Greens, for example, are sympathetic to these issues, uh, and you know their policy platform is a lot stronger than, say, the Liberal Party. 
uh, or the Liberal National Coalition. Um, but still, it's not, you know, necessarily their highest priority. Um, and, you know, that's not, not what their party's for. So they've got other priorities and, you know, possibly very good ones. But um, we, we think there needs to be a party that represents the overwhelming majority of powerless individuals, which is non-human animals. And, you know, we, we talk to all of those parties. Um, so, you know, some of that conversation's uh, very cooperative and some of it isn't. Um, but we also negotiate with all of those parties using the power that we've won at the ballot box. And, you know, that, make, that can make a difference. Um, I guess um, the other t- um, there's sort of two issues I actually want to um, quiz you on. Um, I guess the question of animal welfare is um, really relates, um, you know, how we treat animals relates strongly to these two major kind of political issues, and that is um, agriculture and um, climate change. And so I'm interested in hearing what are kind of like the animal justice party's position on those questions. Mm. Let me let me start with climate change because I think that's um, really uh, pretty pretty interesting. Um, we, you know, we think we've got the best policy on climate change, uh, which is, you know, it, it's, a, it's a really terrible situation. It's an emergency for the planet and uh, should be talked about a lot more and, and needs to be, um, you know, solved. And basically solving the problem of climate change involves two things. Um, if we can very simplify, we, you know, we need to change our energy generation uh, plant um, to be uh, low, low emission. So there, that is talked about a heck of a lot by the other parties, uh, sort of, you know, um, solar and wind and all of this stuff, and it, it's really important. Um, but there is something that's actually more important. Um, it, it, our animal agriculture is a massive producer of uh, global warming potential, of, of greenhouse gases. Things like methane and nitrous oxide and, and you know, the, all of the carbon dioxide used in the supply chain for these things is just massive. And, you know, there was a movie like Cowspiracy that pointed out some of the, the estimates, and the estimates, you know, vary in number. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm convinced that it's more important, it's like a bigger proportion of our uh, overall warming potential than, than, in fact, our generation, energy generation is. So... To, for all the major parties to have that ignored, which they do, um, says to me that either they're ignorant or uh, or actually are treating this issue as some kind of political issue to win votes on, but are not prepared to talk about human diet because it's you know it's a political loser. Um, well, you know that's very cynical. Uh, let's talk about it because it has to be done <laughs> if we're going to solve this problem. And uh, so, you know, we, we say, yep, let's, let's take emergency measures to change our energy generation structure, uh, invest in renewables and low emission technologies, do research and development, absolutely. But let's also look at um, reducing the amount of uh, uh, animal agriculture that we do, both for Australians and for overseas, because that is killing the planet, uh, quite apart from the fact of, you know, the injustice of the... The, the health of uh, the health of people and uh, the environment and uh, the other environmental factors and you know and the animals themselves mm. 
And I think the other issue uh, you mentioned was, um, no, I've forgotten now. Um, it was agriculture, but you sort of covered that slightly, but unless you want, yeah, you want to Yeah, well, agriculture is, you know, it's obviously, agriculture is the oldest business in the world. You know, we've got to feed ourselves, but we're also living in a, in a world which is changing quickly, and agriculture can change uh, and become more efficient. And, you know, the basis of that is plant-based agriculture is always more efficient than animal-based agriculture. And plant-based foods are the new, you know, exciting technology that everyone's investing in in the States. Um, you know, we've got billionaires piling into this, uh, into this field saying this is the, this is the most interesting technology that's going to have a bigger impact on the world than anything else, more than, you know, AI or VR is actually we're probably going to change what we eat to plant-based foods almost exclusively, you know, in the, in the future. And let's invest in that because, um, you know, it's, it's much more efficient and healthy and, uh, you know, as a side effect, uh, doesn't uh, involve the torture and death of animals. Okay. You have a um, yeah, I just had uh, one question, Bruce. Uh, there was a story going around about the Animal Justice Party uh, preferencing the Liberals ahead of Labor in the seat of Latrobe. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. So... You know, we, at this election, we've never preferenced, um, well, uh, we, we tend to go in the order of Green Labor Liberal as a sort of, you know, a kind of general rule of what we what we do, but um, it does change from time to time. So in this election, we're standing in uh, uh, 54 candidates, we're standing in seven jurisdictions in the Senate, and we're not putting Liberal on our card at all. We're standing in 40 lower house seats, and in 39 we're putting Liberal last, and in the 40th one we're putting them ahead of Labor. Um, and that's because we've got a, a Liberal who has delivered for animals. He's brought his party on board with banning cruel cosmetics, so animal testing of cosmetics. Um, he's uh, put some legislation through to stop uh, trophy hunting and bring trophies back to Australia to attack the canned hunting trade in South Africa. And he's, you know, he's against live export. And so we feel like we need to uh, work with this guy. We very much appreciate being able to work with him and get through some of this legislation. And uh, it's really a kind of an indication that political power, our political power, uh, you know, of holding votes for animals works because we've been able to get this legislation through. And and the people that, you know, th th this guy, um, Jason Wood in Latrobe, uh, who's worked with us, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll back him and try and keep him there, um, whether, whether the Liberals win the election or whether they don't. I guess we're hoping, we're hoping they don't, um, but that he's a prominent member of the opposition. I guess um, my last question, because we're running low on time, is um, uh, following, um, following on from that whole question of legislation, um, if any of your candidates um, in the Animal Justice Party were elected to Parliament, what would be kind of like the first kind of steps you would take? Like, what would you do um, if elect? What would your part, um, party, do, your candidates do if elected to Parliament in terms of like legislation or what um, policy proposals they will put forward? Yeah, well, I think we're going to probably attack live export first, and there is, you know, there is movement on this issue. It's really hard, but. Um, there's any number of MPs you can talk to who say, well, I'm personally opposed to it. I think it's terrible. You know, if we can get enough people saying that, then we say, oh, hang on, we've got a majority of your party have told us that, so what's going on? Um, with uh, Labor, if Labor take government, we've got um, 
them to commit to $10 million over four years into sort of R&D, further R&D into plant-based agriculture as a way of replacing, you know, our uh, potential exports of, of food and so on um, to other countries. Um, and so we're trying to put in place, uh, you know, steps that we can take, um, as well as they've committed to an independent office of animal welfare. So we're we'll wanting to push them on getting that in as quickly as possible and set that up so that it's actually working for the country. Um, and, uh, you know, we'd be looking to, to end greyhound racing. Um, it's, it's an unnecessary industry involving enormous cruelty. So, you know, we'd be trying to, trying to legislate on that and then work through COAG to get it done through the states. Um, I think, you know, we'd, we'd be focusing on the key issues that we're campaigning on this election, live export factory farming, the independent office and, and wildlife slaughter. Even a party like the Greens, you know, won't commit to opposing kangaroo shooting and we, we don't think they're far away from, from, from doing that, but it requires them to see that, uh, that the politics line up and that, um, you know, that they won't uh, they won't lose out by, you know, committing to a, a better policy. All right. Well, thanks for that. Um, it was a just a definitely a very interesting interview. Um, it's great having you on the show, um, um, Bruce. And thanks for thanks for your time. Thanks too, Jacob. Cheers. 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 All right, uh, Bruce Poon there from the Animal Justice Party, and we are getting close to the end of the show for another week. Um, just a reminder to if, if there are any other candidates out there who feel that they've been slandered by some of today's interviews with other candidates, uh, do feel free to contact 3CR. You do have right of reply. We do encourage discussion from a broad range of candidates. So, I guess um, the next, uh, um, another thing I want to bring up is to remind um, our listeners of... Uh, of you know the need to, for community radio to have donations. Um, oh, yes. The radiophone is actually over, but we've I think um, our program actually has for short of its target, um, and we're encouraging anyone to sort of make donations at nine four one nine eight three seven seven and to nominate um, Green Left Radio as um, your program of choice. Or you can alternatively go to www.3cr.org. Uh, forward, forward slash uh, donate to uh, uh, to do to do so online, and those donations are tax deductible. I mean, tax time is coming up, so indeed, yeah. maybe you could minimise your taxable income and get a bit of cash back from the tax man by <laughs> swinging three CR a bit of skrilla. I don't think you said the word tax enough there, Zane. Sorry? You didn't say the word tax enough there. (laughs) 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 Tax, tax, tax. Usually we say it with with regards to, you know, ending the uh, economic power of the 1%. Yeah. Tax the rich. All right. Well, yeah, that's us. Cheers, Dennis. Cheers, Jacob. And And thank thank you, listeners, for, you know... Listening to us and you know <laughs> yeah. enjoying our, our program of radical news. We'll be here next week. Um, we probably won't have any interviews with um, federal candidates actually next week because I think next week because it's all the sort of days for the federal election, we're Indeed. not allowed to sort of yeah. have any sort of political advertising. All right, stick around for Beyond Zero Emissions. Au revoir. I don't think.